So if you have a Bible, uh, would you stand with me? I'm going to start at verse 12 reading, and I'm going to go through verse 26, if you're able to stand. Um, if, uh, after I finish it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. Of course, you're, of course, thanking God that he would be so kind to give us his word. But also, um, let it be for you, um, the things that he shows you about what it means to be a member of the body, let it be for you when you say thanks, let, you're saying yes, Lord, help me be this kind of person. Help me be a part of the body like this. So starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we all were made to drink of one spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. The ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of, sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more presentable parts that which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the party that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um... For six weeks, we're going to look at what it means, as you saw in that video, what it means to be a part of uh, the church and what are all the different things. We're going to look at what it means to be the body, what it means to be the family, what it means to be the temple, what it means to be the embassy, what it means to be the priesthood, and what it means to be gardeners. And we're looking at these things because these particular six things, we believe here at Remedy, for us to really live out community mission care, we want to embody, we want to live out those particular six things. And we're going to talk about them the next six weeks so that we would all see and understand them so much so that they are becoming part of our DNA, part of who we are as Remedy Church, and we're honoring Christ by doing those things so that we can be the church, so that we can be the church that God wants us to be. And so um, when we get together, we're not just a group of people. We're, we're not at a Christian concert. We're not getting together just as a bunch of people that kind of hang out and then we go out for the rest of the week to do whatever we want. Whenever we have decided to come together, even just on Sundays, what we are in essence saying are we are a church. We are the ecclesia, as it says in the Greek, the called out ones that have intentionally put ourselves together, not just on a Sunday morning, but in essence, always binding ourselves together. And so since that's the case, it has certain implications that we need to make sure that we're living out. Now, there's symptoms of not understanding this completely. And especially in our North American church, this is a book called Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. This is what he says about symptoms of not understanding what it means to be a church, not just a, a concert or a group or a get together, 
But instead, as a church, when we, do, when we misunderstand it, he says this. Maybe we've been duped by Western democratic society into viewing churches as just a voluntary association. Maybe it's a century's worth of practice at being consumers. I'm not sure. But here are some of the symptoms of our wrong thinking. This is the wrong thinking about what church can be and misunderstanding about the implications of what it means to be a church, not just a, a get-together. He says this, Christians can think that it's fine to attend church indefinitely without ever joining. <clears throat> Christians can think of getting baptized apart from joining the church. Christians can take the Lord's Supper without ever joining the church. Christians view the Lord's Supper, then, they view the Lord's Supper then as their own private, private mystical experience for Christians instead of an activity for church members that are incorporated into a body of life together. Christians don't integrate themselves Monday through Saturday with the other lives of the saints when they misunderstand. Christians assume that they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's Sunday morning gatherings a few Sundays a month or even more. Christians can make major life decisions like moving or accepting a promotion or choosing a spouse without ever considering the effects of those decisions on the family relationships that they have in the church or even consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors or members. They think they can make those decisions without ever involving the church. Christians can buy homes or rent apartments with scant regard about how it factors in with such as distance and costs and how it affects their ability to serve the church that they go to. Christians don't realize that they are partly responsible, actually, both for the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of the other church members, even members they have not even met yet. When one mourns, one will mourn by themselves rather than with the church. When one rejoices, one may rejoice by themselves rather than with the church. And so those are the symptoms of a North American church that don't understand that we are actually a church. God has called us together and knit us together specifically for these purposes. So if we're talking about what a definition of a church might be, continuing this book, he says this. A church is a group of Christians that regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership together in Jesus Christ and his kingship and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So there's kind of five parts. He says, we're a group of Christians that gather together regularly, that are a congregation-wide exercise of affirmation and oversight of each other, a purpose of officially representing Christ and his rule on earth as we gather together, and we use the means of preaching and ordinances for these purposes. And so that's, that's how he kind of defines what it means to be a church. One, one pastor says the definition of a church, I'll really like this one, is the, a local church is a community of regenerated believers that confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize together under qualified leadership, elders and deacons. Um, they gather regularly for preaching and worship to observe the biblical ordinance of baptism and communion. And they're unified by the spirit, they're disciplined for holiness, and then they scatter the rest of the week together to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries in the world for God's glory and their joy. And so for centuries, the church has understood what it means to be a church. It's, it's important that we understand that we, when we have put ourselves into a gathering of believers, there's all kinds of implications that come with it. From um, the early church fathers, they have understood that the church is to have four characteristics. One, holy, catholic, and apostolic. One, as in we're unified by shared life in Christ in the, uh, by life in the spirit, that we're holy, that we're to pursue Christ's likeness 
together, that we're Catholic, that's the lower C, as in there's a universal church uh, together that we're all supposed to live under. And lastly, apostolic, that we all are to live under apostolic authority. From the early apostles, we're all constantly living in that authority, that we're one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And then the reformers came and added three other distinctions that whenever you see all these things together, there a true church is. And those three distinctions that they added are the pure preaching of the word, the rightly administering of the ordinances, and church discipline. So where you see all these things together, that's a true church. And where that church is, if you're gathering together, it has all these huge implications that you are actually saying, yes, I agree to all those things then that are supposed to happen. Scripture is clear, Ray Oatland says. We have to choose then, therefore, as Christians, an isola- to be in isolation, which is easy, or we have to choose to belonging, which is costly, but much more satisfying. Much more satisfying. This is what it means for us to be the church. It has major implications. And today, we're going to look at the fact that we are the body. God has called us the body. So what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be the body? Now, each week when we talk about the gospel and how the gospel relates to the particular text that we're looking at, usually um, we look at it in an individual sense because there's two ways, of course, to think about the gospel corporately and individually. But since we're talking about the church, I want to start uh, what it means to be the body of Christ. I want to start with the foundation of the gospel. And so today... Uh, before we get started into the actual text of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, I want to remind us of the gospel today because it is the foundation of everything. But this is the gospel for the church. This isn't just the individual gospel. This is the foundation of it all. This is the gospel. This is the good news for the church. And since it's the gospel for the church, it helps us set our foundation of what it means when we talk about that we're the, we are the body of Christ. Um, the gospel, the church then therefore, as Ray Oatman says, ground zero for the new kind of community, this new gospel community that Christ is creating in the world today for the display of his glory. It is, a, the church is itself a gospel culture. And so here is the good news for the church. And this is our foundation as we understand what it means to be the body. One, none of this will be on the screen. This is all from Ephesians 5. Number one, we need to understand from Ephesians five twenty five. The gospel for the church is that Christ loves the church and he gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ loves all of us so much so that he gave himself up for the church. There's this Puritan named John Flavel, really cool last name. And he is writing this, this kind of uh, thought of what it might look like uh, of the conversation between the father and son where uh, he's... He's trying to understand the deep love that Christ has for the church, that he, so much so that he would be willing to give himself up. And he imagines this conversation between the father and son. It's not, it didn't, obviously, we don't know what happened, right? But just hear the conversation because the truths of it are, are, are true. This is what he says. God says, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice, justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself then therefore an eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Jesus says, Oh my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather that they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may 
see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no reckonings with them. At my hand, you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my father, put all their debt upon me. God the Father says, my son, if you undertake it for them, you must pay it all the way to the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son says, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, I am content to undertake it. And this is what we mean, the gospel for the church, that Christ Jesus loves the church so much that he is willing to give himself up for us. That's the first thing that we can see in the gospel for the church. Christ loves the church and he gave himself up. Second, we see is that Christ then therefore sanctifies the church, Ephesians 5, 26, sanctifies the church by the washing of the water with the word. One commentator says, of course, this could mean baptism, but more so, David Peterson writes, this also means the total ministry of the gospel in the churches. And so the second thing about the gospel for the church is that Christ sanctifies the church by the washing of the water with the word. Ray Ortland writes, the Lord having claimed us for himself makes his love real as the gospel word washes over us Sunday after Sunday. So the good news that Christ has set up for us in the gospel is that we would be in a corporate gathering Sunday after Sunday, being gospeled so the gospel washes over us Sunday after Sunday. The good news is that he died for us, but also that week in, week out, he washes us with the water of the word through the word Sunday after Sunday. That's how he refreshes us and makes his his church fit for himself. There is nothing degrading in Christ, nothing we need to worry about or filter out. His eternal love rains down on, on us in the church, in our churches as we gather together with renewing power through the ministry of the gospel words. So the gospel for us is that Christ loves us and that Christ is sanctifying us by the washing of the light of the word. And the third is this, Ephesians five twenty seven. That Christ Jesus one day will present us, the church, to himself in splendor. He will present us in splendor. Our glorious destiny, our glorious destiny is that Jesus Christ will present us in splendor. This is good news. This is amazing news. Which means that the case is that we are going to be holy. We are holy and we will be holy. So therefore, when temptations come your way right now to not live in his holiness, realize this, nothing in this world, however tempting it is, compares with Christ. Nothing in this world, however tempting it is, compares with Christ and his love for us. John Owen compares Christ's love for us to our weak kind of love that we have for other people. Though it may be great that we have for other people in comparison with Christ, it's nothing. This is what John Owen says. He says, a man may love someone else as his own soul, yet his love may not be able to help him. He may pity him in prison, but not be able to relieve him. Bemoan the man in misery, but not be able to help him. Suffer with him in trouble, but not be able to ease the sufferings. We cannot love grace into a child, nor mercy into a friend. We cannot love people into heaven, though it be the greatest desire of our soul. But the love of Christ 
being the love of God, is effective and fruitful in producing all these good things that Christ loves, that, God, that Christ wills for his beloved. He loves life and grace and holiness into us. We can't do that to other people. But when he loves us, he can literally love life and grace and holiness into us. He can love into us his covenant. He can love into us heaven. This is the amazing love of Christ for us. So this is the good news, that he loved us so much that he gave his life, that he's constantly sanctifying us by the water of the word. And one day he promises to present us holy in splendor before him one day in heaven. This is our future. This is the gospel for the church. This is the starting place that we start at whenever we think about we are the body of Christ. We have to start with the gospel. And so moving forward now, we understand that we are Christ's body. You can see it right there in verse 12, where it says, so it is with Christ. For just as one body and who has one minute, so are the members of his body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We are the body of Christ. And therefore, all these things about the gospel are true of us. Now, in verses 12 through 26, Paul is going to really try to help us understand some things about what it means to be the body. And he's using this metaphor of the body of Christ. And so in the first uh, section there in 12 through 14, in the first section, he's going to talk about the fact that we're the body. And because we're the body, there's diversity and there's unity. And both of those things are important to understand. And he's going to help you understand as you talk about the, the fact that we have unity and diversity in the body. We are the body of Christ. And as he talks about that, he's going to do it in two different ways. They're right there. In verse 13, he's going to highlight our unity. In verse 14, he's going to highlight our diversity. All right, so you just leave that up for now. And you can go ahead and understand what he's going to talk about. He's going to, the second section is very similar. But we can understand that first section. Uh, uh, this is how he's going to out, uh, outline it for us. That we are the body of Christ. And being the body of Christ, there's unity and diversity in it. And in verse 13, he's going to highlight our unity. Verse 14, he's going to highlight our diversity. Go to verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. First, let's just, this is real practical. But whenever you, we talk about church membership or that you are members, this is why we've chosen the word member. Other churches use other words. That's fine. Whatever. That's fine. Uh, this is the word we've chosen because it highlights, I think, the biblical truth that we're all members of the church and we're members of the body of Christ. And now I want to make sure we understand um, we are picking up in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 12. But verses 1 through 11... Uh, before we get to 12 and verses 27 through 31, there's, there's something going on in both of those sections. And we're looking at the middle. Both of those sections, if you look at them, are basically lists of giftings. So right slap in the middle, bookmarked by lists of giftings, lists of giftings, that's hard to say, um, is this discussion on the body of Christ. And so that's important for two reasons. One, as he talks about diversity, as he talks about diversity, he is, in a sense, talking about ethnicity, age, etc. You can see that in verse 13. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. So he, he is talking about social, uh, socioeconomic status and ethnicity, etc. And the, the diversity and the unity in the church and the body is important. In one sense, he's talking about that. But there is a greater sense of diversity that he's talking about. And that's what's on the bookends. It's the giftings. We're all diversely gifted. 
There's people that have seemingly um, more public giftings, and there's people that have seemingly less public giftings. And so he's wanting you to understand that when we're talking about unity and diversity, he is talking about ethnicity, he is talking about age, he is talking about those things, of course. And we want to be diverse. But also, not just that, he's talking about the diversity of giftings as well. That we want to celebrate that we have these diversity of giftings and celebrate that we're unified in those giftings and in our diversity of how God has made us. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing, and maybe more important because he's talking about giftings, is this. Look at the very end of verse 7. The very end of verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. This is just, you've been, everybody that's a Christian has been given a gift. Notice those next words. For the common good. That's huge. It means this. The giftings that you've been given are not primarily for your personal edification. You have been gifted for personal edification, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason you've been given a gift of the spirit is so that you can actually edify other people in this, in this church gathering, in this, in this body. That's the main reason you have gift and you have them because everybody has them. The main reason you have a gift from the Holy Spirit is so that you can use it to serve other people in this church because you're a member of the body of Christ. So as we have all that, because that, we're highlighting the fact that we are the body, we're members, it's good for us to understand the reason why we have them, the reason why you've been given, the reason why you have a gift is for us, not you personally. Now, of course you use it, whatever gifting you have for your own personal edification. Like my gifting is teaching, I think, uh, and that's why I'm here, I think. But as I study, I am mutually, I am personally edified and study throughout the week as I get ready before I teach. So it, there is personal edification. There's no doubt about it, right? However, the main reason we have giftings is for the purpose of blessing and giving those gifts to other people. And then it says in verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the, are of the body, though are many, are one. So it is with, now we expect, I would expect he'd say, so it is with the church. But he doesn't say the church. Instead, he says, so it is with Christ. And so he's skipping the middle step and going to it. The middle step is that it is the church and the church is the body of Christ. He's just jumping to the logical conclusion for us and help us understand. So here's what it means then, therefore, when we talk about the fact, don't miss this. When I say you are a member of the body of Christ. And we've already talked about what the gospel is for the church. This is what the implication is. D.A. Carson. Paul's talking about something important and enduring, tremendously expensive, of which you are a part. He is talking about the church, the body of Christ. For all who truly love Christ, this is immensely sobering. So it has these amazing implications for you. That there is a, a level of sobering that should come to your mind, of sobriety, that you are a part of this. And it's tremendously important that you dive in. Tremendously important that you take a part. You cannot haphazardly be a part of it, is what he's trying to help us understand. Um, and now he's talking about this example of uni unity and diversity here in verse 13 and 14. Remember, uh, it's all founded on the fact that the tr in the Trinity there's union and diversity. So just look with me real, for fun. Look at verse <laughs> 4, 5, and 6. If you look at verse 4, 5, and 6, Paul actually uses the Trinity in 4, 5, and 6. Now there's a variety of gifts for the same Spirit. There's a third person. Uh, varieties of service for the same Lord. There's the second person. And there are varieties of activities. The same God. 
there's the first person. So in, as he's doing the gift, li- gift listings, uh, he, he says the Spirit and the Son and the, and, and the God the Father. And there is no p- more perfect example of the Trinity than unity and diversity. And so just like the Trinity has perfect unity and diversity, we as the body of Christ are to look at that and say, that's the kind of unity and diversity we want to have here in the body of Christ. Not the exact same. I mean, it, the Trinity's God, right? But nevertheless, we're the body. But nevertheless, we're to look at that and understand that that's what we're striving for. So you can see in verse 13 and 14 how he talks about unity and talks about diversity. Look at verse 13. For in one spirit, you can hear the, hear the language of unity in verse 13. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Now, verse 13 is very difficult. There's a lot of things to it. When you talk about baptism... One spirit, being baptized, drinking of one spirit, baptized into one body. D.A. Carson says, and this, this is so encouraging, almost every word and syntactical unit of this verse is disputed. <laughs> well, that's encouraging, D.A., thanks. Um, so how can we understand it? Well, this is what we can understand as a whole. It means this. The spiritual act of baptism, and when you become a Christian, the idea that you have received the Holy Spirit and you've you're drinking in, we're all drinking in of the same Holy Spirit together. The fact that we're all Christians together. Now we've, we've um, self-identified ourselves as part of incorporated members into the same company of the redeemed of the church. And so since that's the case, since the Spirit dwells in both of us and it dwells and surrounds us, it's helping us understand that we have this amazing unity now. That's what verse 13 is trying to help us understand. He's highlighting the fact that we are one body, Verse 13, one spirit baptized into one body and we all drink of the same spirit. We're all one. Even though we have Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. We're all different with different giftings. We're one. We're unified and it should be that way. And then right after that in verse 14, he highlights our diversity. Look how he says it in verse 14. For the body does not consist uh, of one member. So when you look at a human body, it's not just one giant foot or one giant eyeball like Wazowski, right? But of many, that's Monsters, Inc. reference, um, but many. So it's no, no accident uh, that the church body has this really diverse grouping of people. And so he's wanting us to understand that there's unity and there's diversity. Why would he do that? What's, what's the rationale for bringing out this metaphor of having diversity and unity? Here it is. This is what I think. Why unity? Here's why unity. Because people are being saved with all kinds of different gifts Um, and we're all different and God wants the church then therefore to flourish and glorify God. And so those that might be, uh, more publicly gifted, uh, and those that might not be more publicly gifted need to realize that Paul's fundamental concern is that the gifts and the people in Corinth, uh, that are, as they talk to each other, they need to approach church with an, that no one's more important than anybody else, but instead there should be a balanced perspective about who everybody is. There should be unity. In, in, in church at Corinth, this is what was going on. This is why Paul's writing. There were people that said, well, my gifting's more public, and so I'm more important. And your gifting doesn't seem to be more important, so you're not as, as important. And Paul's trying to write towards the Corinthians and saying, no, 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 no. You're actually all the same. You all are, are, are unified. And so those who think that their gifting is more important, you shouldn't think that way. And so no matter who you are, no matter what your giftings are, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what socioeconomic bra- brackets you fall into, you're all 
the same because you're all a part of the body of Christ. That's what Paul's trying to highlight for in verse 13. But also, verse 14, why is he talking about diversity? Because that's how the human body works. And he's wanting us to understand that we're the body of Christ. Uh, Blomberg writes this, without diversity that comes from a specialization of function, one no longer has an organism, just merely one giant organ, unable to do anything. And so he's trying to highlight for us that even though we're all unified, we all are different and we're completely dependent upon each other. So the application therefore is this. Here in the U.S., where individualism is valued among anything else, um, above corporate responsibility, the importance of the metaphor of the body of Christ is looming large over us because it's helping us then therefore fight this rugged individualism that we all have. It's fighting against that. It doesn't want you to think as yourself as an entity and an island of among yourself. It's wanting you to realize that we're all diverse, but we're all one and we're totally dependent on each other. You should be totally dependent on each other here in this church. You are not an island of yourself. So that's what he is doing in that opening section of 12 through 14. Now, in the next section, two sections, he's going to explain to us the twofold application. How does this apply? What does it practically look like? Now, in verse 13 and 14, he talk about, talked about union and diversity. Now he's just going to flip it. So now we're doing, looking at the twofold application of the metaphor. We're his members. You can go ahead and put up these next two. So the first one is the emphasis on diversity, 15 through 20. Uh, and then the second one is the emphasis on unity. And again, remembering Corinth, there's these people in Corinth. They, there's some people that think that they're more publicly gifted than everybody. And I'm calling them the, uh, the elite. That's in air quotes because they think they're elite, even though they're not. Um, or the ones that have more noticeable gifts. And there's also the people that don't think that they're very gifted. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not good at anything. Those are the people that Paul addresses in 15 and 20. He's speaking to the inferior. Now, inferior because they're not, right? Or the people that think that they're, they're more humbly gifted, that they don't think that they're gifted at all. Paul's going to address both of those people. And as he addresses both of those people, he's going to address diversity in 15 through 20. And 21 through 26, he's going to address unity. And as he's doing it, what he's wanting to do is write out some applications. Like this is what it practically looks like now. Um, if we're the body of Christ, then we're also his members. And this is what it means, therefore, to be members of the body of Christ. Now, first let's look at verses 15 through 20, where Paul is going to talk about uh, diversity. I'm sorry. The air conditioning feels a little better if y'all hadn't noticed. It's fixed. Woohoo! Thank you, air conditioned people. All right, verse 15. All right, so as we look at 15, he's highlighting for us diversity. Uh, and he's helping us understand that those who seemingly think that they're inferior or seemingly think that they're less gifted publicly than others... You are tremendously important. He's trying to help them understand that all serve an important function. There is no unimportant gift or person in the body of Christ. No matter who you are, he's talking to those particular people. And he's making the case in verses 15 and 16 that um, diversity is good. Look at 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make any sense. That would not make it less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make... It less part of the body. So in verse 15 and 16, what he's doing here is there's a, there's a part of the body that, that looks at the other part and is like, I'm not as important as that one. The foot would say, I'm not as important as the hand. The ear would say, I'm not as important as the eye. 
And he's saying, that's not true. The hand, you know, it does more than the feet. The feet just walks around. The hand does stuff. The, the ear just might hear stuff, but the eye gets to see things. You have beautiful eyes. No one says, you've got really beautiful ears. You know, no one says that, right? So he's just saying, if one part of the body that thinks it's not as important as the other, I don't belong here. He, he's saying, that's not the case. If you feel like you don't belong because someone... So, just because the hand might be used more than the feet or the eye might be used more than the ear, translate that into the church. If someone thinks, um, I'm not an important member because I don't belong here because someone else seems to be more important to me or better gifted than me, uh, the hand might seem more important than the foot or the eye might seem important than the ear. If you're thinking that way, Paul is saying, don't bemoan what is your perceived limitation of gifting. Don't bemoan that. Now, it might not even be true. But even if it is, don't bemoan that because the truth is, no matter how you think, you're a member just like anybody else, wherever it is. And so since that's the case, you cannot just, you know, tap out. You're not allowed to. It's not the way it works. As Morris says, individual members can't contract out or Ray Ortland says, there's no such thing as churchless Christianity in the Bible. So if you're a Christian, you can't just say, well, I don't have to be a part of a church. You have to be. And you are, we'll see in a second, extremely important. Uh, but he's wanting you to understand, especially in the context of spiritual gifts here, Paul's helping understand that there's no person in the church that's gifted in such a way that they don't serve an important function. Every person, no matter what your gifting is, is tremendously important. Everyone's gifting, large or small, is huge. So if you've ever thought this, if you feel like you're, the people in Corinth, like, I don't have the more public gifts, so I'm not important. I want you to hear this. I'm not trying to be harsh. Um, if you ever thought they don't need me there, that's unbiblical. It's not true. We do because God says we do. And your gifting is hugely important for us to function correctly. Hugely important. Now, if you had your way, if everybody was just, the most publicly awesome gifted, this is what would happen. Verse 17 says what happens. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So if everybody got their way and everybody was publicly gifted and everybody was that one thing, Paul's making the point, if everybody had that, Garland writes, this freakish object then would have no sense of smell, no faculty of hearing, no way to preambulate. That means walk around. Um, It would just roll around, no way to feed itself or digest. A well-functioning body requires multiplicity of members with the multiplicity of functions. So if you had your way, we would not be healthy. We have to have everybody with their diverse giftings and their diverse backgrounds and who they are in order for us to actually be healthy and be functioning. Or else we would just be a big, huge Wazowski eyeball. It wouldn't be good for us. Um, And then he says, if you say, well, I don't like my gifting. I wish that I was that. And I wish that they were this, but it's this. Or perhaps you're up here and you, you wish that you weren't so publicly gifted and you wish that you were down here. Whatever, right? Verse 18 is written for all of us to understand our role and where it is. Notice this. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Not the pastors. I didn't pick your gifting. I can't give it to you. Not the deacons. God arranged the members in the body. And no one knows better 
in every single local autonomy church better than God what our gifting should be. So we have no reason to not be happy with where we are. It's perfectly suited where you are. God arranged the members in the body. Here it is. Each one of them as he chose. Each one as he chose. Meaning where you are and where you're gifted and what you do right now in Remedy Church is God's design. God has designed you to be in here and divinely placed you in this fellowship to exercise the exact gifts that you have right now so that we can be healthy. You're crucial with what you're doing. It's absolutely important. This means that we have been placed by God in Remedy Church at this specific time, specifically put by here, with our giftings, back up to verse 7, for the common good, for everybody to be blessed. And so you are absolutely crucial and God, my crucials are whistling. I don't know why they did it in first service. I'm sorry if it's annoying. Anyway, back to verse 18. I just pointed it out and you didn't even notice. Now you will. Um, so verse 18, God has arranged your giftings and put you there. Now, here's the, here's the last thing. Verse 19 through 20, it says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? If all were a single member, back to the idea, if everybody were the same thing, no matter how important of a member may be, there can be no body formed from it alone. That would be a monster, not a body. But, as, but if in fact, as things are, there are many parts and together they make up one body. So that we can't just be one huge head or one huge hand. We have to be all these particular things. And so Paul brings it, I can't conclude better than Paul. Paul brings it all to this great concluding point, highlighting our diversity right there in verse 20. As it is, there are many parts yet one body. All of us are the many members or parts of the body and we're all one. We're all part of the body of Christ. And so he finishes that, that section in verses 15 through 20, speaking to the, the people that think they're inferior or less gifted and saying, it's okay. Diversity is God's plan and it's great. And now he's going to get to the next section in 21 through 26, continuing the analogy, applying it to the church and helping us understand. He's speaking to those people that think they're highly gifted, highly publicly gifted, and they're super stoked about it, that they think they're awesome. And he's going to speak to them and he's highlighting for them unity. Unity, meaning everybody else that's part of this church is tremendously important. Now, I want you to notice this little phrase. It's in verse 21 and it's said twice. And I think that it's in quotes and said twice because it means Paul actually heard that someone in Corinth said this to someone else. It's coming from the people that think they're highly gifted to the people that they think aren't important. Watch this phrase. The eye cannot say to the hand, quote, I have no need of you. Nor to the head say to the feet, quote, I have no need of you. I think that someone in the church in Corinth who's highly gifted looked at the people that are seemingly not as gifted and not as publicly known and said, you know what? I don't even need you for my walk, for my, my, my pursuit of Christ. I don't even need you. Um, I don't think that there could be anything worse that you could say if these words are actually uttered. I don't think that, uh, anything worse could be said to someone in the church, especially if you think that you're super gifted to someone who seemingly is maybe not as publicly gifted as you. I don't think there's anything worse that you could say. And so, 
however you're gifted. I want you to think, don't ever say, don't ever come off like you think this, or actually don't even let yourself ever believe the worst thing that ever could be said to someone else in this church. I don't need you. Don't ever, ever let that enter your mind. Don't ever believe it if it does. You need every single person in this church. Every single person. And this is what Paul is addressing. Nothing could hurt a person more than saying that they don't need what would be the perceived inferior people because they're more gifted. That because they think that their hands and eyes and they don't really need the ears and feet. Paul wants unity and no division. And he's trying to help the quote unquote more gifted people in the church to have the same care for the people that maybe aren't as gifted as them. And that he wants them to feel it and understand it. So like he wants them to say, the other day I was walking, I can't remember where it was, but I, I, I was walking, I think it might have been, oh, I know what it was. You know how you have a Durango, you don't have a Durango, but you have a car and it's got a, it's got a hitch, right? And you're walking around and all of a sudden, whenever you're walking, that little hitch that sticks out, for some reason, you are completely, it's invisible. And they're like, wham, and you hit your shin. You're like, oh my goodness, I hit my shin. Oh, and I can't move. You know what I'm saying? Or maybe that's not you. It happens to me and I'm uncoordinated. Or you're hammering and you hit your thumb, right? And you're like, oh, I hit my finger. Um, what he wants us to think is this, not, oh, I hit my shin. Oh, I hit my thumb. He wants us to think, oh, I hurt myself. Not I hurt a specific thing, I hurt myself. In other words, he doesn't want you to think of who you are individually. He wants you to think of who you are as a body. When someone's hurt, we're all hurt. It's not, oh, that person's hurt. Hope they figure it out. The shin's hurt. The shin can figure it out. I'm fine because I'm the hand and I don't hurt at all. That's not what he wants us to think, right? He wants us to think if someone in the body's hurt, we're hurt. That's what he's highlighting for us. He's going to actually say that for us at the very end. But this is the point he's getting across. He never wants us to think, to look at someone and say, I have no need of you. I have no need of you. If you've been gifted with God, with what might be a more noticeable gift, realize that you need every single person in this church. And if you have been gifted what seemingly is not as noticeable gift, you are absolutely crucial to us going on. Now you might say, well, I don't feel that way. Well, um, for those that are highly gifted and think they don't need the other people or those that are maybe not as publicly gifted and think uh, that they don't matter, Paul wrote verses 22 through 24 for us, for us to understand it's all balanced out right here in 22 through 24. Now, as we look at this, he's going to euphemistically refer to people's private parts uh, and help you understand that they're all the same. They're all equal. Now watch what it says. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those who seem to be gifted in a less public sense are indispensable. You have to have them. On those parts of the body that we seem that we think less honor we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part of the body that lacked it, that there be, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So what he's saying here is he's euphemistically referring to private parts and saying they might seem weaker, they may not seem important, but actually in comparison to all the other parts, feet and hands, etc., they're actually strong and crucial. You have to have them. Those gifts that you think aren't noticed are just as crucial as the ones that might be noticed. He's saying all of them are the exact same. 
um, in regard to their unity, and they're all just as crucial. So if you think that you're never going to play a huge public role in your giftings at Remedy Church, and therefore your involvement week in, week out, or your involvement in the ongoing um, usefulness of the church isn't important, Paul, therefore God, is saying you are important. You're tremendously important. Though you might be covered so that no one sees you, that doesn't mean that you're not important. You're crucial. Those things are crucial. And if you just use them in the body, there's no babies without those private parts. They're crucial for the ongoing um, perpetuation of us, right? And in the same way, those, those parts are crucial for the ongoing growing of the church. And so if you feel like you're in the, in the shadows and you're not important, I would say Paul, therefore God, is saying, as he, as he says here, indispensable, seemingly weaker, not weaker, seemingly weaker, indispensable, which brings us to those people that think they're great, leveling it off and changing these people's minds. So here's how we all should think then. It's right there at the very end of verse 25. The members, that's all of us, may have the same care for one another. This word care, merimneo, merimneo, this means high concern, high concern. It means this, that there's no way that you can have lukewarm concern for someone. And he's saying everybody, everybody in the church should have this kind of care for one another. This high concern, never lukewarm care. Nobody in the church should ever be um, left out of this kind of care. Meaning there's no special care not given to someone or also there's no special care that's lavished onto one member to the detriment of other members. Everyone is equally merimneoed in a church. Lavished care upon, no lukewarm care, high concern for all people. And so let's make sure we don't miss this, okay? Because every one of us will say, oh, that's good. Pastors need to make sure they're doing it. Of course, pastors have to do that. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, like that's the qualification for pastors. It's part of the qualifications of pastors that they show this kind of pastoral care to the people in the church body. But I don't want you to remember this or, or, or forget this. Who's tasked in this particular text with that care? Of course, the pastors are. But look at this text, verse 25. But that the members may have the same care for one another. This means that every single one of you are tasked with the care of other people in this church. You are to have merimneo care for every single person in this church. High concern. Never lukewarm concern for anybody in this church. That's... That's pretty astonishing. This is describing the way the members are to have care for each other. And when we do that, we achieve verse 26. This is, you know, if there's a goal, here it is. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. That's what Merimneo care looks like. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If somebody's hurting, we're there Getting around them, loving. If someone's honored, we're not like, oh, how come they get all the the good things today? We're like, yes, we love it that God's doing great things in your life and blessing you today. We have high concern. 
for each other. So if we're looking at applications in regard to unity, we want to build up unity in such a way that we never negate others in the church, never ever let them think that they're not important. And conversely, regarding diversity, we want to accept a greater uh, diversity of ethnicity and socioeconomic status and age and all those kinds of things. And we want to accept a greater variety of giftings in our church, creating this kind of diversity because every single person is absolutely crucial for us to actually be healthy. We have to have this multiplicity, diversity of giftings for us to really be crucial. I mean, really be healthy. And so Paul closes with this in the Corinthians saying that we all have to feel this way and understand that, that it's impossible for us. In verse 26, all members suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's impossible for us, for one part of the body, to be in pain and then therefore for the remainder of the church to just be at peace. That's impossible. That's what he's saying should be the case in our church. Paul's word uh, that he's using here emphasizes the impossibility of rivalry within the body. There should never be that. Uh, Blomberg says this about this concluding. He says, Encourage then therefore all believers to major in the areas of their strength, but in the context of intimate interdependence. That means we are all absolutely dependent upon each other no matter what. Wipe off the U.S. American individualism. You are completely dependent on everybody in this church. And so he's saying that there must be an intimate interdependence and also makes us possible then therefore to obey verse 26 where we suffer together and rejoice together. It's difficult for people to rejoice, to weep or to rejoice with whom they don't even feel close. And so we have to have this kind of thing. And to conclude, Paul, I think, gives the best conclusion in verse 27. And here it is. Look at verse 27. It's not even part of the text we're looking at today, but this is the best conclusion. And here it is. Now, you, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So live out the unity and diversity that's been described. We are the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is who we are. We're the body of Christ. Unity and diversity being brought together in the most perfect sense. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us live this out. That we would truly embody this and do this. That we would show deep love and care for every single person in this church. No matter who we are, no matter where we're gifted, that there would never be a sense of superiority over anybody nor would there ever be a sense of they don't need me. That all of us would realize that we're crucial to the health of this church, every single person. And then therefore we would grow as deep as we can to each other. We would have this amazing care for each other, so much so that there's no way that we can be lukewarm with our care for each other. And so therefore we are functioning as the body together. This multiplicity of giftings and people being brought together, but still one, one, loving each other, caring for each other, and being the body to each other. Create this at Remedy Church. Continue to stitch it together in your will, and let us then therefore um, glorify you and make disciples as the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.